Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. everybody. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Coffee, Cows, and Crops. Today I'm talking to uh, Dr. Barb Wilhelm, the coordinator at the Western Canadian Animal Health Network. Uh, and today we're going to talk about uh, what they do at the Animal Health Network, how disease monitoring works, and uh, what that surveillance means for producers. But before we get into all of that, Barb, would you mind introducing yourself and just going over a bit of uh, about you and how you got involved with surveillance. Sure. Well, first of all, uh, thanks very much for inviting me. I'm, I'm really glad to be here and have a chance to chat with you and, and tell your listeners a little bit about uh, WeCan. So I'm a large animal veterinary practitioner and I live in Vermilion, Alberta. And as a practitioner, what I found over time is that the part of practice that I liked the most was the herd problems. Uh, I, I like the individual stuff too, but particularly the herd problems and figuring out why is this happening. And so over the years, I've done some grad work uh, at a distance in epidemiology, which studies disease in groups uh, as opposed to individuals. And it looks at, you know, what is what are the underlying causes of disease in groups and, and how does disease spread? And so I, I just gradually became more interested in that angle of practice. As far as animal health surveillance, the idea of regional animal health surveillance has been around for a while in Canada, actually. And in Ontario, they've had the Ontario Animal Health Network uh, for over a decade, I think. Uh, they've had ATCAN in Atlantic Canada. And uh, Rezo in Quebec is the longest uh, operating animal health network in Canada, actually. It's been working for decades. And so WeCan's been described as the last piece in the puzzle, actually, for uh, Canadian regional animal health surveillance. And so the four Western provinces joined forces to initiate WeCan early in 2020, and I started working on WeCan in April of 2020. So that's how long I've been at it. Cool. So that covers a little bit about what uh, WeCan does, but what what's kind of its mandate? What function does it fulfill in, in the disease surveillance world? Well, that's a really good question. I, I think probably, you know, this far into a pandemic, I think most of us have, have some idea of, of surveillance, um, kind of loosely meaning watching for bad guys. And, and so in, in animal health surveillance, then we're, we're basically watching for trends in animal health and disease. And when we see something that we think is significant, then uh, that needs to be communicated to some groups about the potential risk and maybe also about some actions that we should be thinking about taking. Um, so WeCan is governed by a steering committee that's similar to a board of a not-for-profit. And that includes representatives from the four Western provinces and also from Prairie Diagnostic Services, which is the organizational uh, champion. And it's also the virtual home, I guess, for WeCan. And so that steering committee has defined four core activities for WeCan and, and therefore for me. And one is surveillance primarily at, at quarterly network meetings that I can talk about a little more. Uh, the second one is pulling together surveillance work that's done by other groups. And, and there are uh, a number of other groups just within Alberta um, doing different aspects of, of animal health surveillance. 
And so for both of those situations, the, uh, the network meetings that we can hold, uh, the work that's done, um, the very good work that's done by other um, animal health surveillance researchers and other groups, um, part of my job then is, is to convert that information, which is often in the form of you know, a government report or a scientific publication, and convert that into as user-friendly a format as we can find. And so, for example, infographics um, or podcasts, that kind of thing. Uh, and then finally, uh, the fourth, fourth activity is communicating all of that to, uh, to uh, primarily veterinarians and livestock producers, but really the general public as well, so as, as broadly as, as possible. So surveillance and then gathering up what other people are doing um, sometimes repackaging it if, if some of the other groups are interested in working a little bit to, you know, make an infographic or a podcast or something about their work and then, and then communicating that um, as broadly as possible. That's, that's the four main activities of weekend. Awesome. So um, I think, yeah, generally most producers are pretty familiar with disease surveillance in, in the general sense uh, with mad cow disease and bovine tuberculosis and that sort of stuff. We've, we've seen kind of the government level uh, diseases of interest, I guess. But what sort of diseases are monitored by WECAN? Do you monitor everything? Do you have a couple diseases of interest? Um, that is a really good question. And um, long story short, we monitor everything and you're exactly right I mean there are there are some diseases that we well actually that we know are outside the country uh, and we are all keenly interested in them not being introduced and you know if, if any of your clients or, or your listeners rather have have pigs African swine fever you may have heard of uh, is um, moving around the world and we're really really keen on keeping it out of Canada so the, you know there's that group of diseases and and the federal government of course is is uh, takes the lead on that kind of thing um, there are groups of diseases that we know are in the country and in Alberta, for example, um, and they have sometimes potentially pretty major economic uh, implications when, when they happen. And so those diseases may fall into what's called the reportable category, meaning when the diagnosis is made, then uh, say the provincial government is informed and they will contact the producer and, and they'll have some suggestions about, you know, treatment options and how to control it. Um, there's also a group of diseases that don't have quite the same level of impact, but nevertheless, you know, the provinces or the federal government are interested in knowing what's happening with them. And those are called notifiable. And so again, uh, when the di diagnosis is made, uh, the government is informed, but they don't then actively move in and, and suggest, you know, here's what you need to do in terms of control, but they are watching the trends. And then there's, you know, the vast majority of animal diseases uh, don't fall really into any of those categories. So a lot of things that your listeners are probably pretty familiar with, you know, calf scours, calf pneumonia, uh, they're important and, and they can important, be important to individual producers and they're important to the beef industry, but uh, they don't pose the, uh, the kind of threat that uh, the ones which are are reportable or notifiable do. And so WECAN has an interest in all of those, but probably most, most uh, we spend more of our time on uh, the ones that are not reportable and notifiable, um, partly because they don't get the same level of, of scrutiny um, from some of those other groups like the provincial government or the federal government, but they're, they're all of interest. 
Um, if you'd like, I could tell you a little bit about how a, a typical network meeting works, and maybe that would sort of illustrate for you how we tackle it. Yeah, I think that'd be awesome. Yeah, okay. Well, um, the basic idea with with our three networks, and so currently within WeCan, we have a beef network, a dairy network, and a poultry network. We're hoping to add small a small ruminant network in the fall. And actually, there was a swine network in Western Canada that predates WeCan, so that one has been very well uh, served for a few years now. Um, the way they all work is uh, they have these quarterly network meetings, and the basic idea is that every three months, a fairly small group of people uh, get together by video conference and um, talk about the animal health events in that sector. So, for example, the beef sector, uh, we just had a, a meeting that was discussing you know, the first quarter, the first three months of this year. And so we have a variety of folks that come to those. Uh, we have veterinarians from each of the four Western provinces who've been identified by uh, the veterinary associations um, from each province. We have uh, diagnostic uh, veterinary labs and they send representatives uh, to these meetings. Uh, we have faculty from the two Western vet colleges at uh, Saskatoon and Calgary. We have researchers in that sector and reps from industry um, we have provincial veterinary epidemiologists from each of the ministries of agriculture. And um, depending on the network, we have some other people attending as well. I don't know if your listeners will be familiar with uh, the Canadian Integrated Program for Antimicrobial Resistance Surveillance, or CPARS, which is a bit of a mouthful, but they do some really important work in, in monitoring for antimicrobial resistance in, in livestock and also in, uh, in uh, uh, retail uh, products. And so we all get together and it's sort of like uh, the kid's story about stone soup, actually. I mean, everybody brings what they can in terms of information for that three month period that we're talking about. And uh, everybody contributes what they can and, and that uh, forms the discussion for the meeting. So ahead of time, I get information from the practitioners. They fill out a little survey for me. The labs send me um, printouts from their uh, information systems of what they've diagnosed over the previous three months for, you know, for example, for the, the beef clients or, or the poultry or whatever. Um, and uh, everyone uh, sends their information to me ahead of time and I, I parcel it up and, and uh, send it out to the folks who are going to be on the call. And that forms the basis for what we talk about. So you'll appreciate, I mean, we, we, we capture everything, but we do tend to discuss probably more, uh, the more routine things, um, which are more what the practitioners see usually. Uh, although it's certainly an opportunity for them. I mean, if, if there's something new, um, that'll get discussed, of course. But um, I don't know if that helps clarify things maybe a little in terms of, of uh, what we talk about. Yeah, that's interesting. So it sounds like this is a really good uh, way to kind of identify like, trends and that sort of stuff and, and maybe catch things a little earlier on, on a grand scale if something's if something new is happening. Exactly right, and, and that's the idea, um, is that uh, particularly the practitioners, um, it's their first opportunity to really to talk to each other because they're busy and also to talk with the labs directly about what they've been seeing. And so, um, you know, one example I can give you that might also be helpful to you and your listeners is in the Ontario network, uh, about a year ago, they were talking about the final quarter, I guess, of 2019. So, you know, from October to December. And at the meeting, a few of the practitioners said, you know, they had seen um, these cases of, of uh, a bacterium called manheimia causing really severe pneumonia in adult dairy cattle. And I mean, um, 
pneumonia in cattle is not an unusual thing. You're probably well aware, but you know, to have really severe problems in uh, mature dairy cattle, that's a little unusual as a population. And so um, after that, uh, that network followed up with a survey of the bovine practitioners of Ontario. And at that point, it turned out actually 37 practices had seen the same thing um, that fall. And so as a result of that, now there is a more formal study of, you know, uh, as many of the, the dairy herds as they can persuade to participate basically in Ontario, trying to discover, you know, what is the exact level as nearly as we can estimate it of, of this problem with pneumonia and what are some of the causes. And so again, like the network meeting is, is, is um, just as you said, it's, it's intended to be a really early indicator that can then lead to other things. Cool. So when you do find new things, that means that you can uh, respond to them a little bit. But are there, in in the year or so that you've been operating already, are there sort of diseases you've been watching that have been uh, popping up a lot? Yeah, good question. And again, of course, it falls into a few um, different categories, I guess. I mean, there are things, again, if you're familiar with, with beef production, you'll realize, you know, calf scour is a pretty common problem. Um, nevertheless, we're interested in um, whether people think they are seeing it more frequently than they did the year before, or whether they're seeing it in a different age group. Um, and over time, it does seem like, you know, the, the preponderance of calf scars has shifted. When I started practicing, um, we used to think of it as being a problem, you know, really baby calves the first couple of days. And, and um, now predominantly, it seems to have shifted to be a, a problem with slightly older cattle for some reason. And, and that's something that's being followed up. Um, by investigation uh, by some of the vet colleges and also by um, another um, dedicated surveillance uh, group called C3SN or, or the Canadian Cow Calf Surveillance Network. They have a group of sentinel farms that now they're asking more specifically about stuff like um, scours, for example. So there are those things that we see all the time and, and maybe the trend is changing, but it's a familiar problem. And then as well, there are some uh, problems that seem to be emerging that aren't as familiar. And, and um, those, of course, are, are of interest too, even if they're not very frequent at this stage. So I can tell you, for example, there was a discussion at the Beef Network meeting about a bacterium, which is a kind of strep. And strep are really, streptococci are really common uh, commonly encountered in, in animals and people and, and um, a big family um, that may or may not cause disease. Some of them are, are quite innocuous. Uh, there's one species that seems to be getting slightly more, more frequently diagnosed in, in calf illness, although it's still quite rare. Uh, and so there was discussion around that. And one of the researchers concluded, oh, you know, this is kind of interesting. Maybe we could pull together all of these uh, isolates from the labs because there really aren't that many in total. I mean, it's, it's still quite a rare thing, this particular species. And they're going to try sequencing them and, and seeing how much we can learn about it, uh, hopefully in advance of, of uh, it becoming perhaps more of a problem. So um, there are a few different categories of disease and you know, of course, how we respond to them then differs too. Interesting. So, um, oh, I know what we should go back to a little bit. Um, you just mentioned that there were um, some different classes of disease. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about those different classes of disease and kind of how, how they're handled or if they're handled differently, if they're handled the same, that sort of stuff? Okay. Well, there, there are different ways you can think about it. One is, is in terms of regulation. And as I said, 
there are some diseases that we know exist outside of Canada and, and can have quite a severe impact. And of course, then the federal government, among others, is is uh, the lead on on uh, keeping those those out of the country. There are diseases in every province, and the lists are, are quite similar, but not identical across the provinces. I'll say uh, there are you know short lists of diseases that are reportable, meaning if they are identified on the farm, then that diagnosis is reported to the government, and and they will have some suggestions in terms of how to control it because it's the ones that are designated reportable. Uh, receive that designation because they they can have some pretty severe impacts on animals and sometimes on people as well. And then they're the ones that are notifiable. So those are the ones that are being monitored, but not necessarily, uh, you know, the producer won't won't be told, here's what you do uh, when they're diagnosed, but uh, that could change over time if if the trend seems to be that they're increasing, for example, maybe then they would be reclassified as reportable or something. And then there's the vast majority, which aren't, don't fall within uh, that classification system. I mean, they, they may still be quite important, you know, for, for an individual animal or even for a farm, but they, they don't have quite the same impact as those uh, other recognized ones. So there's that regulatory thing. But I mean, then there's also the question of, of um, um, some diseases. In fact, most cattle diseases, for example, only affect cattle, but, you know, some also have the potential to infect people. So in general, we probably... Um, are more uh, more concerned with those when they're diagnosed and and those are more likely to be uh, notifiable or reportable if if there's the potential for um, human infection as well right actually on that on that note of uh, diseases that are transmissible between animals and humans this isn't in my notes but no are there steps that you always take when there is risk of human trend or human infection? Are there things that can help reduce that risk, that sort of thing? That is a really good question. And I think, again, it's probably one that we're all more conscious of having just lived through the last 18 months or so in terms of, of mm-hmm. um, how diseases can't be transmitted to people and, and some of the steps we can take to, um, to cut, cut that transmission down. Um, for zoonotic diseases, you know, personal protective uh, equipment and particularly disposable gloves are really important. And, you know, I was chatting with um, uh, a beef producer who's actually also on the, the beef network and uh, mentioned to him after, you know, we talked about a couple of zoonotic diseases at that last beef network meeting and uh, impressed me after. I, I wonder if we should if I should make more of a point of um, stressing how important, you know, for example, disposable gloves are prior to next calving season, because those those really basic precautions um, are very important. Some of those infections can be um, life altering. And uh, I can tell you at the Dairy Network meeting recently, we were talking about Q fever, which is uh, a bacterial infection not terribly common, but you know it's it's being studied right now. Particularly, the Saskatchewan government currently has a program where they're um, subsidizing the lab fees. So when um, abortions, uh, ruminant abortions, so cattle or sheep and goat abortions are di- are sent to their their diagnostic lab there in Saskatchewan, then they're automatically checked for uh, the bacteria that causes Q fever at no charge to the producer, or the veterinary, because they just want to get a handle on how frequently uh, it's occurring. And um, so you know they have found a few cases of it. Uh, in this program this year, which is what we were talking about at the Dairy Network meeting. And 
suddenly one of the dairy practitioners said, well, you know, funny you should mention that um, I was really sick last year and I couldn't work for months. And, you know, I've been taking doxycycline for five months now to try and get this under control. And my diagnosis ultimately after um, a lot of difficulty was, was Q fever. So um, it struck me in this last round of meetings, actually, how um, they're not, they don't occur frequently, but as I said, they can be life altering. And some of those basic precautions, including uh, wearing gloves and, you know, washing your hands really well after, and perhaps limiting who has contact with animals on the farm, if there's anyone in the family who's pregnant or, you know, on chemo or otherwise immune compromised, some of those really basic precautions that are now a little more familiar to us with COVID, those are really important for uh, farm families to keep in mind. And um, I think lots of people just don't think about it unless you happen to have a family member who's got cancer or something like that. And even then, unfortunately, sometimes people aren't aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just something that doesn't come up very often because it's not super common unless you've known somebody who got a diagnosis. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Awesome. All right. So from zoonotic diseases, what are some ways to prevent uh, disease transmission and infection on farm, especially when you start dealing with these, you know, outbreaks of, of uh, pneumonia and that sort of thing? or bad scours even, I guess. Okay, well, again, great question. So thanks for that. And and again, I think after the last 18 months, many of us can probably think of, of a few things that we can do, I would just in kind of intuitively to, uh, to cut down on disease transmission. Um, mm -hmm. Stepping back a little bit, I'll, I'll say like one thing that, um, is often a factor in, in a herd having some kind of a, an infectious disease problem, unfortunately, is is introducing new animals. And so again, intuitively, uh, we can kind of picture how that works after a pandemic. If, if you can keep a closed herd, if you can really reduce traffic on and off uh, at least parts of the farm, um, that can be very helpful. And a lot of herd disease problems are ultimately traced back to introducing an animal that was carrying a disease but not showing any signs of illness. And that is incredibly frustrating for everybody concerned. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. That being said, I mean, for some farmers, it, obviously, it's not possible for everyone to operate what we call a closed herd. And, and it's also probably important for people to realize, um, even with a closed herd, we as owners and caretakers may inadvertently bring disease onto the farm ourselves through some of our management procedures. Uh, some, um, some diseases can be introduced through some feed components that you might purchase. Uh, it can be transferred by insects or rodents. And so, where I'm going with that is, is that biosecurity uh, in general is really important. And so that can be designed as, or defined rather, as, as practices that are designed to prevent or reduce or eliminate the introduction and spread of disease. And here in Alberta, we're really fortunate that Alberta Agriculture has a great bunch of resources on their website. I know we'll come back to that, but uh, I, I really think your, your listeners, if, if they haven't, they should have a look at that uh, page because uh, there's a lot of good information there. But um, so three broad areas, basically, you, you manage the access and, you know, maintaining a closed herd would be, um, I guess, the, the more extreme example of that. But I think lots of, of uh, cattle herds, as, as time goes by, uh, whether or not they consciously do it, uh, they probably have certain zones on their farm. And so, you know, around your house, you might have, especially as COVID hopefully recedes into the rearview mirror, you might have lots of traffic with your kids and your friends and perhaps some, some other businesses coming in and out to that part of the farm. But in contrast, hopefully 
the area where you're calving during calving season, hopefully there is very little traffic there. And, you know, if you let anybody in there, you might even demand that they wear your boots and, and coveralls or something like that. So that idea of zoning, again, is, is another way of managing access. Um, we can manage animal health through a variety of means. And quarantine is a really simple thing that can be a very powerful tool. And sometimes uh, people don't think of that in terms of quarantining introductions, like putting them in a separate spot for a certain length of time uh, when they first come onto the farm or vaccinating, uh, which uh, again is a, is a very useful way of uh, managing animal health. And finally, managing some of the, the operations on the farm like pest control for some of those diseases that could be uh, transmitted by insects or, uh, or rodents or that kind of thing. And so in general, I mean, I, again, I would recommend the Alberta Agriculture website because there is uh, such a great bunch of information there. But also, of course, it's good to talk with you, your own veterinarian about that kind of thing and, and come up with a biosecurity plan um, that really works, uh, that really complements the way your, your farm work, works and the way your, your uh, management system works um, to minimize uh, the chance for introduction and transmission as much as possible. And on that note, um, about how long do you recommend for, for a quarantine of new animals? Because um, I've heard anything from like seven days to a month to. Yeah, again, reasonable question. I guess I, in general, uh, we often talk about, you know, a 14 days, like a two week quarantine. Um, and that often serves very well, but it will vary a bit depending on the disease you're considering. So again, I, I, to get specific, I, I would really suggest you um, establish a, 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 some kind of relationship with a veterinarian if you haven't already, and then talk to them about your specific situation. Okay. And yeah, that's a perfect segue um, into, we've, we talked a lot about, I don't even remember when now, three or four years ago when the VCPR legislation first came in about all of that. But yeah. can you give me just really quickly what a veterinary client-patient relationship is and uh, how it relates to disease control and, and this, all this sort of stuff? Okay, sure. I, I'd be glad to try. Um, I'll start off maybe by um, quoting Dr. Jansen, who. Uh, is on, on faculty down at the Veterinary College at Calgary, and he has been a veterinary practitioner himself and also a veterinary epidemiologist, so he too has a, a real interest in herd problems. And uh, years ago, Dr. Jensen said to me, the best surveillance system in the world is veterinary practitioners. I mean, granted, Eugene and I are probably both arguably a little biased on that one, but uh, I really think that's true. Veterinarians are the ones who hopefully know the animals and their owners before there's a problem. Uh, and they tend to be the first ones on the scene, usually. And so to me, they're the heart of the system. And owners are really, really important, too, obviously. I mean, they, they see their animals every day. Often they're the first one to realize there's, there's a problem at all. But uh, veterinarians are really critical in, in making that diagnosis. So I, I'm with Dr. Jansen. I, I think um, they are uh, critical to uh, animal health surveillance. And so in terms of a VCPR, then, um, that is the, the veterinary client-patient relationship. Um, is a term that obviously describes a certain kind of relationship. And so maybe I'd, I'd start off by saying what it's not. I mean, you know, going into your clinic and purchasing, I don't know, um, flea powder three years ago doesn't really create a VCPR <laughs> uh, for you, particularly with regards to your beef herd, for example. And so, 
again, a VCPR means a certain kind of, of relationship between um, a herd, because it seems like we're, we're maybe talking mostly about beef herds, and uh, the veterinarian. And so the veterinarian has has to do some things. And basically what the veterinarian does to say that a VCPR is in place is they have agreed, like they have actively agreed to take responsibility for making assessments and recommendations on the health of your animals. And then the owner has agreed to that too. So again, just, you know, the, the transaction of purchasing something a while in the past um, doesn't really fill the bill in terms of a VCPR. But then there is some expectation from the veterinarian also that they have to have enough knowledge about your animals that they can make an assessment on the medical condition that you are talking to them about. And so that means that they know your animals and they keep records of your interactions, even when they talk on the phone. And I can tell you, veterinary uh, practitioners spend a lot of time keeping records because we really do try to track all of that information. And they keep records on the disease status of your herd and they can, that's all stored and, and they can refer to that. And so that's what they've done. Uh, the client then has agreed to follow the recommendations and the prescriptions where they make them. And the veterinarian has agreed that they are either available for follow-up or um, they have arranged for somebody else if they can't be available themselves for follow-up if there are problems, say, uh, with some kind of reaction to something that, that uh, they've prescribed. So there are a few different elements there. Like again, the, the vet says, I'm, I'm willing to be responsible for making these recommendations. Um, they have had enough contact with you and your farm that they, they know you and they have a record of how things work. Um, you've agreed that, that you're gonna follow what they suggest and the veterinarian has made themselves available. So all those things need to be in place uh, for a VCPR to be considered to uh, have been established. And I think you'll appreciate when you've gone through that kind of contact and discussion and thought, um, you've done a lot of good prevention in terms of, of uh, giving yourself a leg up when you do have an, a, a health problem crop up. Right. For sure. Let's see. Is there anything I have missed that you wanted to talk about? Uh, I guess one thing I'll maybe, I'll pass along. I'll tell you one, one agricultural sector <laughs> that many different groups have some concern about is the issue of like small flocks and small herds and you know people with backyard poultry or a few pigs or a couple of sheep that kind of a thing um, there is some concern in terms of of those animals getting adequate veterinary treatment when they need it uh, there's concern because the people who own them often come, you know, they'll they'll take their chicken into a small animal clinic or, or ask the equine practitioner that's out floating their horse's teeth or something. And so um, in many ways, mm -hmm. those those small flock and, and small herd animals, they just don't fit as well into, you know, the, the system of veterinary care um, that a lot of, of clinics are, are more comfortable uh, dealing with. And so one service that we can has offered to try and help a little bit with that whole problem of, of adequate uh, animal health and, and adequate veterinary service to small flocks and small herds is we have a couple of dedicated listservs. And so uh, veterinary practitioners in Western Canada, if they're licensed, uh, but they are perhaps not, you know, specialists in poultry or in pigs, uh, I have two listservs and I have contracted with poultry specialists and swine specialist veterinarians to answer their questions. Um, so when people come in, um, you know, to uh, a mixed animal clinic, 
with a poultry problem or or uh, even a small animal clinic. I gather sometimes you know they'll they'll be asked to deal with uh, a few pigs or or that kind of thing. Um, they do have that resource available to, there's no charge, they can just uh, email me and, and uh, get put on the listserv. And then as questions arise, um, they can ask them uh, pretty much in real time to the, the uh, practitioners that are specialists that we've got waiting to uh, give them some tips on how to diagnose things. So um, I, I guess that's surveillance of the sort. And the, again, it, it's back to that really early, you know, if, if nobody, uh, realizes that there's a problem or if a veterinary practitioner isn't involved, then it, it, uh, it almost doesn't exist. Um, so we're, we're really trying to provide a bit of a service there for um, general practitioners, if that's a reasonable term. That's good to know. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I think we're pretty close to, to time now. So uh, are there any resources, information, links, people can find out more about uh, disease monitoring, monitoring or the Western Canadian Animal Health Network or any of that sort of stuff uh, that you'd like to mention before we sign off here? Sure. Uh, we can has, uh, we, we have our own website. And so uh, there are a bunch of resources there for the general public and also for producers and also for veterinarians. And so that's at www.wecan.ca. And I know you'd mentioned the, uh, you post the links uh, as well. Mm -hmm. um, again, Alberta Agriculture has some great resources, uh, particularly on biosecurity, which I think um, are well worth a look. Uh, the ABVMA also has uh, uh, an area of, of their uh, public website that I think your, your listeners might find you know, of interest. Um, and as well, uh, I guess I haven't really mentioned, but there is a national animal health surveillance system called the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System, or CAS, that's really the umbrella group uh, that helps coordinate and support uh, the regional groups like WeCan and the one in Ontario, the one in Quebec, the one in the Atlantic. And they too have a lot of resources at their website, particularly um, particularly for equine, although they, they have uh, a broad range of uh, you know, beef and dairy and, and other uh, sector resources as well. So all of those are, uh, I think, if you have the time, they're, they're all well worth a look. Awesome. And yes, I, I will put some links down in the description of this podcast. So uh, if you want to have a look, you can scroll down and follow those links. Uh, and with that, thank you very much, Barb. This was Good fun. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, thanks again. Uh, thanks, and again, hopefully we'll we'll get a chance to do it a little more. But uh, great questions. I really appreciate your interest. Thanks a lot. Peace Country Beef and Forage Association is a research and extension group based out of Fairview, Alberta. Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative, and attractive to future generations. To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets, check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca. Want to get in touch? Have a burning question or a topic suggestion? Send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening.